Two flights take off out of LAX. Find out how both flights ended disastrously. Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Miranda. I'm Christy. And today we have... Aaron. This is my friend Aaron. We went to college together. And He's still going to college. <laughs> I just graduated. One more semester left. <laughs> Aaron is... What's your major, Aaron? Aviation and aerospace with a concentration in air traffic control. Yeah. So we've, we've I think we've talked about you before saying that you were going to come on eventually. Yeah. Now you're here. Hi. Welcome. <laughs> Hi. It's been a long time. Yeah. yeah. We have, I haven't seen Aaron in like, I don't know, maybe close to a year. Nah, no. No. Maybe like, like six, six months six or so. Months, yeah. And he walked in. Aaron's really tall. And of course, you guys know I'm very short. So I was like, it, it feels like he grew like six feet since I've seen him. <laughs> but really, he's, I've shrank. No. Just kidding. No. <laughs> I, I. It's just because we haven't seen each other in a long time. So yeah. it's nice to have you on. Welcome. Woo. This ought to be awesome. I'm really curious about your major, so we'll probably talk about a lot of that, a lot yeah, of that no in the post-episode as well as maybe during this. But, but yeah, this will be, I think, pretty cool. So we picked out one for you. Okay. So what are we covering today, Nick? Thank you for saying your line. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> so today, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to trip you up on a little mystery, but I'm going to start with TWA Flight 2. Oh. This happened on June 30th of 1956. Old. Old. It's old. It's over 60 years old. Yes. It is a typewritten report. It is a typewritten report. Oh, no. <laughs> Let me tell you. I hate those. Yeah. Yeah, me too. This was a Lockheed L-1049 Constellation that had the name Star of the Sen. Back then they liked to name airplanes, so this one had a name. S-E-N? Yes. S-E-N. S-E-I-N-E. Huh. Mm-hmm. The Sen, like the river. This flight was to be from Los Angeles International Airport to Kansas City Downtown Airport, which was their commercial airport at the time. It is very close to downtown. It is no longer their commercial airport. Mm-hmm. The captain for this flight was to be Jack Gandy. He was 41 years old. He had 14,922 hours total, of which 7,208 hours were on the Constellation. The first officer for this flight was to be James Ritter. He was 31 years old. He had 6,976 hours total, of which 825 hours, 25 hours were on the L-1049, the Constellation. The flight engineer was to be Forrest Brayfogel. That's a great yeah. name. It is quite the name. That's the flight engineer name. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> he was 37 years old. He had 7,896 hours total. Of which, 7,237 hours were on the Constellation. So, almost all of his time Goodness. was on the Constellation. Well, I find that that happens with when we go into flight engineers. Yeah, flight engineers. have a lot of hours on the, on the aircraft they are typed to be flight engineers on. Yes, they usually just stick with one and done. Yep. And so, yeah, he only had like 500 hours elsewhere. So. Which was probably in a small GA plane. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There was another flight engineer on board. His name was Harry Allen. He was just an additional flight engineer. As a backup, he did not operate the airplane at any point in time. In total, there were 64 passengers and six crew for this flight. Preparations for the flight were normal, but departure was delayed a few minutes for minor maintenance. The flight was dispatched with 3,300 gallons of fuel, 
and the load manifest showed a gross takeoff weight of 108,115 pounds, which is below the maximum for the airplane, which is 113,200 pounds. The load was shown to be properly balanced, however. The flight departed LAX at 9.01 a.m. After takeoff, the flight was transferred to a radar departure controller and vectored through the overcast skies in the L.A. area. After reporting that they were on top, quote-unquote, of the clouds at 2,400 feet, the flight was again transferred to the LA ARTCC, or Air Route Traffic Control Center, for its in-route clearance, which had the flight fly as filed but climb to 19,000 feet in VFR conditions at 270 knots true airspeed. So the difference between, this is something I don't know if we've ever explained, true airspeed versus indicated airspeed. Mm-hmm. True airspeed is actual speed over the ground. Indicated airspeed is what's flowing into the pitot tube, which when you're at altitude, where the air is thinner, is usually a lot lower. So true airspeed is relative to the ground, and indicated airspeed is relative to the air. Correct. Yes. Most of the time these days, it's known as GPS speed, Yeah. which is true airspeed, versus indicated airspeed. Mm-hmm. Immediately after receiving this clearance, the flight crew asked for a change in their routing to fly over Daggett, the town of Daggett, in California. Via Victor Airway 210, which was approved by air traffic control. Is there still a city named Daggett? There is. Where is it? It's a tiny, tiny, tiny town in the middle of nowhere. That's great. At 9.21 a.m., through the company radio communication, the flight crew reported that it was approaching Daggett and requested a clearance to 21,000 feet rather than the 19 they were assigned. They were notified by the air route traffic controller that the request could not be approved because of traffic along their route. So because they weren't cleared to fly to 21,000 feet and they were required to stay at 19,000 feet, the flight crew then requested a clearance to fly 1,000 feet on top of the clouds instead. So in other words, 1,000 feet above 20, the cloud 2, level. 2,500 or so, 25,000. So they wanted to fly 1,000 above whatever cloud level was. Basically, this was a loophole to allow mm-hmm. them to fly at 21,000 feet. Wow. Mm-hmm. Basically, they could do whatever they wanted. Yep. And it turns out because they were also VFR traffic up there, and uh, we'll get into that in a minute, but there were VFR traffic where they were flying to, then they were allowed to do that. And they were allowed to basically do what they want. Wow. Yep. Okay. Welcome to the 1950s. Yep. So the air route traffic controller verified that they were at least 1,000 feet above the clouds at the moment, and then they were cleared to remain 1,000 on top for their routing. At 9.59 a.m., TWA Flight 2 reported its position through the company radio at Las Vegas. It had reported that it had passed Lake Mojave at 9.55, so a few minutes earlier, and that they were 1,000 feet on top at 21,000 feet. So like we said, they were now now at 21,000 feet. Mm -hmm. They completed this call, stating that they were estimating that they would reach the 321-degree radial of the Winslow Omni Range Station, or Painted Desert, as it was known, at 10.31 a.m., with Farmington as their next point. Remember 10.31 a.m. Yep. Got it. <laughs> this would be the last time that this flight was heard from. Bum, bum, bum. The flight then entered a large uncontrolled area where they were to fly VFR, or visual flight rules, and they could deviate from the flight plan slightly if they needed. This was legal. Well, yeah, it's the 1950s. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> they began flying over the Grand Canyon, where they were flying over cloudy but broken skies. They deviated from their flight path to allow a better view for passengers to sightsee the Grand Canyon. (sighs) Welcome to the 1950s. While doing this, the flight suddenly shook violently and then began to dive nose down. It crashed near the Colorado River inside the Grand Canyon. All on board perished. See, 
you don't know, I'm sure you actually know what this crash is, but I know, and then it just makes me mad. And I can't be mad yet, because technically and, you're not supposed to know. And yet. I'm probably <laughs> about to give it away, because now I'm about to flip your world upside down, listeners. Now we're going to talk about United Flight 718. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> the de- deflated sigh. Oh. <laughs> This also occurred on June 30th of 1956. Mm. This was a Douglas DC-7 mainliner named Vancouver. Is that where it was made? It was named the main mainliner Vancouver. The DC-7 was known as the mainliner, mm-hmm. but it was known as mainliner Vancouver. No, that's just what the airlines like to name their airplanes, and that was what DC-7. United decided to name this one. It's like cruises uh, naming their ships. Well, it's like Frontier yep. still names their planes. Yep, yeah. and Pan Am always named theirs Flipper what have you. Mm-hmm. Anyone else nowadays other than Frontier? KLM still names theirs. British Airways still names theirs. Qantas still names theirs. So everyone except the people in the United States other than Frontier. <laughs> yeah. It's because Frontier's based in Colorado. They cool like that. Yo. Most of the... Most <laughs> well, of the... and all of their... They have animals on their tails, so they just name the animals. Mm-hmm. Most of the old airlines yeah. still name theirs, except for the ones in the United States. The legacy carriers don't. United doesn't anymore. Delta doesn't anymore. American doesn't anymore. And to be honest, Delta really didn't. They had yeah. a few named airplanes, but most of the time they didn't. And then American really didn't much either, though they did in the beginning. And then they started switching over to like nicknames for the type of plane, because they yeah. tried to market the plane rather than a name. So like they named the DC-10 the luxury liner, and the 727, the Whisper Jet, and they would market them that way. This flight was to also start at Los Angeles, and it was to go on to Chicago. The captain for this flight was to be Robert Shirley. He was 48 years old. And and went by Bob. Yeah, he went by Bob. Bob Shirley. Bob Shirley. (laughs) Yep. He was 48 years old. He had 16,492 hours total. Most experienced of anybody we'll talk about today. He had 1,238 hours in the DC-7. The DC-7 was a pretty new airplane, and it was pretty new to United. So Especially com- around that time. Yes, yeah. exactly. So compared to the Constellation, he the crew was less experienced on the plane type compared mm-hmm. to the crew on the Constellation. The first officer was Robert Harms. He was 36 years old, and he had 4,540 hours total, of which 230 were in the DC-7. So pretty new to the DC-7. The flight engineer was Gerard Fiori. It's again, another great name. <laughs> uh huh. Mm-hmm. He was 39 years old. He had 2,670 hours total, of which 285 hours were on the DC 7, so also pretty new on the DC 7. There were to be 53 passengers and five crew for this flight. The flight preparation for this flight was normal and included 3,850 gallons of fuel. The manifest showed a takeoff gross weight of 105,835 pounds, which is below the 114,060 pounds. Required for this airplane. The plane was properly balanced for takeoff and flight. The flight departed from runway 25 left at LAX at 9.04 a.m. This was three minutes after TWA Flight 2, but was supposed to have departed at 8.45 a.m. per their schedule. They were delayed, however. This was also a different takeoff runway from TWA 2, and they were flying in a different direction after takeoff. They were to fly an IFR or Instrument Flight Rule Flight Plan that had them cruising at 21,000 feet. Uh oh. Okay, that's where the that's where the <laughs> whole now you see the whole issue here. And they were to fly at 288 knots ground speed, so a little bit faster than the 270 that TWA Flight Two was planning. All right. After takeoff, the flight contacted the Los Angeles radar controller, who vectored the flight through the overcast skies, just like TWA Flight Two. Once they reported being on top of the clouds, the flight was then handed to the LA Center frequency, 
where they were cleared for their flight plan as filed, but were instructed to climb to the assigned altitude in VFR conditions, so visual flight rules. The flight made position reports to the Aeronautical Radio Inc., which was contracted by United as the company radio. They reported passing over Riverside and later over Palm Springs intersections, as they were still climbing to 21,000 feet. They estimated that they would reach Needles, another little town, at 10 a.m., and Painted Desert at 10.34 a.m. So Uh-oh. slightly, 10.34, slightly after when TWA had planned. Yeah. At 9.58 a.m., the flight was ahead of schedule, and they made a position report to the CAA communication station located at Needles. The crew reported that they were over Needles at the time, still climbing to 21,000 feet, and they estimated that they would be at Painted Desert at 10.31 a.m. Uh-oh. <laughs> here's, here's where everything starts to click. Well, 10.31. Uh-oh. <laughs> yep. <laughs> With Durango as their next check-in point. Durango, Colorado? Durango, Colorado. Oh. Woo. Yeah. Fun airport. <laughs> yeah, it is. At 10.31 a.m., an unidentified radio transmission was heard from the aeronautical radio communications at Salt Lake City and at San Francisco. At the time, they couldn't make it out, but it was later determined to be, quote, Salt Lake United 718, uh... We're going in, end quote. We're going in? Like yep. to the canyon? We're going in. That's <laughs> the, all they, they said. They just didn't. Okay. This was to be the last time that they would be heard from. Oh, great. Like TWA, the United flight had been flying over the Grand Canyon, and it deviated from its path slightly to show, to give a better view to the canyon, to the passengers. The airplane suddenly banked hard and then shook violently and glided steeply out of control into a canyon wall near where the Colorado River and the Little Colorado River intersected. All on board this flight perished as well. The Constellation was found first out of the two airplanes. The Constellation crashed in a draw on the northeast slope of Temple Butte on the west bank of the Colorado River. The main wreckage site was at 3,400 feet and was strewn along a southwesterly heading, which would have been alternate to the direction of their scheduled flight. They found that the plane was inverted on impact and the wreckage area was relatively small, showing that it impacted at a very steep angle. Severe disintegration of the plane occurred upon impact. Apart from the tail section of the airplane, and some of the peripherals from that area, all of the rest of the airplane was located at the wreckage site. The tail, however, was located elsewhere further from the main wreckage site. 550 yards away. Yep, 550 yards away. Which is about 500 meters for all you metric people. The DC-7 was located about 1.2 miles northeast of the Constellation and was found much later. It was about 10 feet below the top of a ridge at an elevation of 4,050 feet. The wreckage was northeast bound, so the direction of flight intended, with the nose down and the right wing low. Impact forces caused severe disintegration, just like TWA, and a large fire erupted after the crash. Some of the wreckage was in a gully, and on a sheer ledge that were just too difficult to access. All of the plane was located at the main wreckage site, apart from a 20-foot section of the left wing tip, which was found closer to the site of the TWA crash. Oh. I was wondering why. If you haven't caught on yet, <laughs> you probably will soon. <laughs> this investigation was performed by the Civil Aeronautics Board, or the CAB, and was led by Jack Parshall. He himself had his own history of aviation crashes, having been in four total. Great. Actual crashes? That's what the air disasters episode said. That kind of speaks okay. to the era. If you're in one, fine. If you're in two, Maybe questionable, stop. 
Three, I just stopped flying at that point. Four, why do you still take a plane anywhere? Just drive. <laughs> Ask you, Howard Hughes. You clearly don't have a great sense of luck or probability at that point. But it kind of speaks to the era. It's like he's involved in the job because he's passionate about it now, having been in four. And at the same time, I mean, it, the, things just weren't very safe. Well, back and the then. fact that he was in four and is still alive. Yeah. That's yep. a lot. Yeah. Good for him. Yeah, for okay. real. <laughs> and good for him to have a career in it. Anyway, investigators in this time had very little to work with, way less than the NTSB does today. Oh, of course. <laughs> All they had was the wreckage and their wealth of combined knowledge. No black boxes, no witness reports, nada. Nothing. The TWA wreckage was at the bottom of the canyon and was enlightening all on its own. Although there was a post-crash fire, the iconic constellation triple tail that was found away from the main wreckage, meaning that it separated in the air, held some of the answers. This part of the plane had a red stripe running through it and was concaved on the leading edge. It normally had a red stripe, I should specify. The aft fuselage held more answers. It had red, blue, and black marks on the outer white paint, as well as some gray stippling and smears. Another section of it, the lower and bottom of the aft fuselage, had three large gashes near the baggage compartment. They were about parallel, about 35 inches apart, and the middle was 52 degrees relative to the longitudinal axis of the plane. In these cut edges were more colorful marks, red and blue. Let me guess. The paint scheme on the United yeah. was Blue. On the propeller, yeah. specifically. Yep. Amidst the TWA wreckage, though, were some parts of a third wing. The outer wing of a DC-7. I was going to say, I wonder what else, what DC-7 <laughs> went missing. I don't know! This was the only part of the United DC-7 that was unaccounted for at the main wreckage site. The whole section of outer ring that was missing was, as Nick said, 20 feet in length, and the majority of it was actually found a third of a mile west of the TWA wreckage. On this section of wing were black rubber smears and red paint transfer. Huh. The black rubber smears were found to come from a de-icing boot, and the red smear was paint transfer from the red stripe. On the TWA flight. Yep. So if you haven't figured it out yet. So they collided. <laughs> this is known as the Grand Canyon Collision. It may be fairly obvious to some of you, but the investigators had to take some time to figure out exactly how the two aircraft collided, how the left wing of the DC-7 hit the aft fuselage of the Constellation. Using some careful measurements and angle comparisons, investigators determined that the United DC-7 was approaching the Constellation from the right rear and tried to die while rolling right, almost approaching the Constellation parallelly, but the wingtip collided with the back fuselage. You can find videos of this on YouTube if you want a better visual representation. Once the collision occurred, the wingtip separated off of the DC-7 and the tail separated from the Constellation, which just then became a giant paperweight and plummeted to the canyon floor. Because you can't fly without one of those, as it turns out. Turns out, no tail, no flight. Nope. As we've discussed. The DC-7 was able to fly a little ways away with very limited controls, having lost an engine and part of a wing, but it eventually collided with the canyon wall. Flying in the 1950s was a lot different than flying today. Obviously. <laughs> hmm. In both times, you file a flight plan, but today, adherence to those is very, very strict, and any deviation in path is strongly regulated by air traffic control. Yeah, that's why I sighed earlier. This reminds me, there was a, a French beachcraft that in did that. In Quiberon Bay. Yeah, they did that, and guess what? There, there was, was a collision. And then guess what? They crashed. <laughs> and people died. <laughs> 
Anyway, so. in the 50s, your flight plan went over many reporting points. Once you were out in less congested areas, you could deviate from more favorable weather and winds fairly easily. TWA allowed crews to fly VFR or IFR through weather in uncontrolled areas. You could be 1,000 on top, but you have to be VFR. United did not allow flying in weather when out of airways. You had to be visual out of airways. Investigators found that the two flight crews were in regulation in this regard. Neither had deviated from these instructions. Upon interviewing the TWA controller, he testified that he heard Captain Gandhi acknowledge the information he was told about UA-718 being nearby. Did you say that? Nope. Oh. He did say that, that they would be on the flight path. What I kept the mystery because I read that one first was that they were told not to climb to 21,000 feet because of traffic yep. on their route. You said that, but you didn't say it with the UA. No, because I didn't want to talk about it yet. But yeah. he did say there was traffic. There was traffic there was and traffic. that that flight would be at 21,000 feet. So he acknowledged it. The pilot was aware. And the air traffic controller said he was told not as an FYI, but more as an excuse for being denied clearance to ascend to 21,000. So normally he wouldn't have been told. Apparently. Huh. Investigators listened to the air traffic control recordings and found the overlap between the two planes, both estimating to be at the Painted Desert Line at 1031. They also found, though, that while TWA was told about the United flight in passing, United was not notified about TWA. Okay, that's kind of a problem. Yeah, but to is. be fair, TWA was supposed to be a couple minutes ahead of them. And supposed, and to, be supposed at- to be at 19,000 instead of 21,000. And they also weren't required to tell United. Yeah. The only reason they told TWA was like, this is why you can't do this. Yeah. Basically. So now we know how they came to be in the same place at the same time, but how did they not see one another? That's my question. One of the most basic lessons in in learning to fly is see and avoid. From the way investigators determined the collision happened, it's pretty obvious to determine there was no way the constellation could see, let alone avoid the United plane. Well, because the United was behind it. Yep. From the angle that the DC-7 hit the Constellation, the United crew should have been able to see the Constellation for two whole minutes. Yeah, that's a problem. So why didn't they act sooner? Well, they could have seen them in clear weather. Was it not clear weather? It It was was not. not. Oh. Oh. Weather reports in the Grand Canyon area reported overcast weather with dense clouds from 2,000 to 15,000 feet and more scattered buildups up to 25,000 feet. The board was of the opinion that, quote... The weather conditions at 21,000 would not have precluded flight in VFR conditions, but that deviations may have required to circumvent the buildups, end quote. So there was weather around. There were clouds. Enough that they could go around it, but it was there. This scattered cloud condition may have obscured TWA from United 718 until the very last second, which is when they decided to dive and roll, and that was not enough. Now let's look at the controllers for the second. At 10.13, the Salt Lake City controller was aware of all that was happening. Both flights were on their way to the Painted Desert Line with the same ETA and were on converging courses at the same altitude, but he made no effort to let the crews know of the other. But let's also dive into the requirements of ATC at the time. Air traffic control's primary responsibility were any planes flying IFR, or instrument flight rules. ATC is responsible for maintaining separation between those aircraft. Flights under visual conditions must provide their own separation regardless of flight plan or clearance. Because they should be able to see the people around them. Furthermore, ATC didn't have that kind of responsibility anyway in uncontrolled airspace, like they were in. They were only to monitor progress to maintain orderly flow of instrument traffic. That is what provided the flexibility we do not have today. The CAB determined that the Salt Lake City controller was within his duties. Which brings about the need for reform of the air traffic control system, which we will get to after the findings and probable cause. 
Now we're going to take a break at a break. Slight break at a break. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Okay, so for findings. So there's only you know, 16 of these, and they're all pretty short. So I'm just going to read them verbatim from the report. They found that the companies, the aircraft, the flight crews were all properly certified. They found that the preparation for both flights were complete and routine. They found that the flights were properly dispatched on IFR flight plans over accepted high-altitude direct routes. They found that approaching Daggett, TWA Flight 2 requested its company radio to obtain 21,000 feet as an assigned altitude or 1,000 feet on top. They found that the company radio requested 21,000 feet IFR from the ARTC, or Air Route Traffic Control. This was denied by ARTC. Requests was then made for 1,000 feet on top. This was approved, and clearance was issued. The flight climbed to and proceeded at 21,000 feet. They found that as an as an explanation for the denial of 21,000 feet, TWA Flight 2 was furnished pertinent information on UAL Flight 718. So in other words, they were given enough information to know there was another airplane in the area at 21,000 feet. They found that the last position reported by each flight indicated it was at that time at 21,000 feet, estimating the painted desert line of position at 1031. They found that the Salt Lake controller possessed with position reports at approximately 1013, at which time both flights were in controlled airspace. They found that traffic control services are not provided in the uncontrolled airspace, and according to existing air traffic control policies and procedures, the Salt Lake controller was not required to issue traffic information. None was issued voluntarily. They found that a general overcast with some breaks existed at 15,000 feet in the Grand Canyon area. They found that several cumulus buildups extending above flight levels existed. One was nearly over Grand Canyon Village, and others were north and northeast in the area of the collision. They found that the collision occurred at approximately 1031 in visual flight rule weather conditions at about 21,000 feet. They found that the collision in space was above a position a short distance west of the TWA wreckage site, 17 miles west of or approximately three and a half minutes flying time from the Painted Desert line of position. That one's really confusing, but that's just a, an approximation of where they were. They found that under visual flight rule weather conditions, it is the pilot's responsibility to maintain separation from other aircraft. That was just the regulation at the time. They found that, and don't get me wrong, it is still important because we still do see and avoid, but there's only so much see and avoid possible. They found that at impact, the aircraft relative to each other converged at an angle of about 25 degrees with a DC-7 to the right of the constellation. The DC-7 was rolled about 20 degrees right wing down and pitched about 10 degrees nose down relative to the constellation. And they found that there was no evidence found to indicate that malfunction or failure of the aircraft or their components was a factor in the accident. And the probable cause verbatim. The board determines that the probable cause of this mid-air collision was that the pilots did not see each other in time to avoid the collision. It is not possible to determine why the pilots did not see each other, but the evidence suggests that it resulted from any one or a combination of the following factors. Intervening clouds reducing time for visual separation, visual limitations due to cockpit visibility, and preoccupation with normal cockpit duties. Preoccupation with matters unrelated to cockpit duties, such as attempting to provide the passengers with a more scenic view of the Grand Canyon area, 
physiological limits to human vision, reducing the time opportunity to see and avoid the other aircraft, or inefficiency of en route air traffic advisory information due to inadequacy of facilities and lack of personnel in air traffic control. Okay, so that given, there were no recommendations. This is an old report. It's obviously CAB. So as we've said before, you cannot get this unless you have a uh, Department of Transportation login. You can get it otherwise. But... Actually, um, this particular one. This one was Were you available... able to get this one? Yes, this one was available on the Wikipedia page, actually. This, well, I want to tell you what reference number it is. And we'll, so we'll discuss what changed. That, that's my part. That's her part, based on the Wikipedia page. And then we'll have a discussion, since you're here, about what you know and about what's changed. And I have a lot in mind. So, okay. um, First, and I have probably a few points on that, too. So, To find a copy of this typewritten, unfortunately, report, it is reference number 19 on the Wikipedia page about the 1956 Grand Canyon midair collision. So there you go. Uh, so the points I have are... First of all, some things about blame and, and the public and who they blamed in that in that thing. But also a few things that came from this, and then I'm going to read from the Wikipedia page, again, the best of sources, um, about a little bit about what changed after this as well. Because there's two big things that came from this, and we'll talk about that. So first of all, ATC had no radar at the time. There was no way to see planes in the air. Because radar didn't really exist yet. And therefore, uh, they could not see every airplane in the sky. So the blame on ATC was misplaced because a lot of the public had blamed the ATC controllers that this had happened when, in fact, they had no idea where each plane was in comparison to each other. Right. To be clear, there was some radar, but it was only in really what was considered really busy airspaces. Because populations. It was, and, yeah, because yeah. it was basically impractical for most places. So in LA, there was actually a radar controller and there was radar abilities, but outside of the LA area... Basically, for the rest of their routes... They were relying on radio transmission. Yep. And point data, basically position data fed by radio to their company right. radios. So there was no one person to blame, and blame does not lie with the pilots, nor with the controllers, but with an inadequate air traffic control system. So this led to the many air traffic control systems that we have today regarding air traffic control, like more radars to help planes with not having mid-air collisions. Mm -hmm. There's more things for air traffic controllers to use to make sure this doesn't happen again. A big outcome of this crash is that the United States now has a nationwide radar system, so ATC can see all planes in the sky, even in remote areas of the country, like the Grand Canyon. It's huge. Um, another thing that changed, which I didn't put in my notes, but I think is very important, is, uh, and I think it might come up on the Wikipedia page, but... Civilian air travel, military air travel did not talk to each other for a long time. This happens in other countries, and we've talked about that before, but it was a big issue here for a long time. A lot of airplanes collided together, military and civilian, because they weren't sharing information with each other. That is not the case anymore. If there is a plane that needs to be hidden from radar, I'm assuming that they will be told where other air traffic is, etc. Well, cetera, and they can see other air traffic. Right. And that brings me to my next point, which I don't know if this is actually in place now or not. You guys it are going to have to tell me. It is. 
Do you know what I'm talking about? The thing where in the episodes, like, by 2020. Well, yes. Yes, it is. Pilots can now see exactly where the traffic is around them because it's essentially they have a radar in the cockpit. Uh, mm-hmm. TCAS. Yeah. Yes. Yep, TCAS, <laughs> ADSB, all that. Yeah. So that was that part of the we National should... Geographic episode. TCAS is the... Traffic Collision Avoidance System. It's to make sure the planes don't collide. And ADSB yes. is Automatic Dependent Surveillance Broadcast. Yeah, right. that's, uh, the, the smaller planes have that, so... Yep. And ADSB is now mandatory throughout the United States. Yeah. And but weirdly enough, it's still there's still a lot of loopholes to it. But most airplanes do have ADSB legally in order to fly and be registered, they have to have it. And yeah. it's it, I think it's an important thing. They at least have to have ADSB out so that they're feeding data to other airplanes. Yeah. So I'm going to read directly from the Wikipedia page on this crash. Just know that if any of this information is incorrect, let us know. We will revise it. But this is from the wiki page. So this is under the Catalyst for Change section. At 128 fatalities, the Grand Canyon collision became the deadliest U.S. commercial airline disaster and deadliest air crash in the U.S. soil of any kind, surpassing United Airlines Flight 409 the year before. Of course, that was not the case for long. It was surpassed in both respects on December 16, 1960, by the 1960 New York midair collision, which, which guess what? Also involves a United and a TWA plane. We'll cover those someday. <laughs> I read that and I was like, huh. Yep. The accident was covered by the press worldwide and was the story, as the story unfolded, excuse me, the public learned of the primitive nature of air traffic control, or ATC, and how little was being done to modernize it. The air traffic controller, who had cleared TWA to, quote, 1,000 on top, was severely criticized as he had not advised Captain Grady and Shirley Gandy. about- Gandy and Shirley. Thank you. About the potential for traffic conflict following the clearance, even though he must have known of the possibility. The controller was publicly blamed for the accident by both airlines and was vilified in the press, but he was cleared of any wrongdoing. As Charles Carmody, then the assistant ATC director, testified during the investigation, neither flight was legally under the control of ATC when they collided, as both were off airways, which means they weren't in a space where they could be seen. The controller was not required to issue a traffic conflict advisory to either pilot. According to the CAB accident investigation final report on page 8, the en route controller relayed a traffic advisory regarding United 718 to TWA's ground radio operator, quote, ATC clears TWA2, maintain at least 1,000 on top, advise TWA2 his traffic is United 718, direct Durango, estimating needles at 0957. So they were told that there was potential traffic in the area. The TWA operator testified that Captain Gandhi acknowledged the information on the United flight as traffic received. So we talked about that earlier. The accident was particularly alarming in that public confidence in air travel had increased during the 1950s with the introduction of new airlines like the Star Constellation or airliners, excuse me. (laughs) There were new airlines, too, but airliners, like the Super Constellation, Douglas DC-7, and Boeing Stratocruiser. Mm-hmm. Travel by air had become routine for large corporations and vacationers, often considered flying instead of traveling by train. At the time, a congressional committee was reviewing domestic air travel as there was growing concern over the number of accidents. However, little progress was being made, and the state of ATC at the time of the Grand Canyon accident reflected the methods of the 1930s, which means... Bad. 
Yes. As near misses and mid-air collisions continued, the public demanded attention. Often con- contentious. Thank you. Often contentious <laughs> congressional hearings followed, and in 1957, increased funding was allocated to modernize ATC, hire and train more tra- air traffic controllers, and procure much-needed radar, initially military surplus equipment. However, control of American airspace continued to be split between the Military and Civil Aeronautics Administration, or the CAA, which was the federal agency in charge of air traffic control at the time. The CAA had no authority over military flights, which could enter controlled airspace with no warning to other traffic. The result was a series of near misses and collisions involving civil and military aircraft, the latter often flying at much higher speeds than the former. For example, in 1958, the collision of United Airlines Flight 736 flying on airways and an F-100 Super Sabre fighter jet near Las Vegas, Nevada resulted in 49 fatalities. Mm-hmm. Again, an action was demanded. After more hearings, the Federal Aviation Act of 1958 was passed, dissolving the CAA and creating the Federal Aviation Agency, FAA, which was later renamed, as we know it today, the Federal Aviation Administration in 1966. The FAA was given total authority over American airspace, including military activity, and as procedures and ATC facilities were modernized, mid-air collisions gradually became less frequent. So that's what I was talking about before. Yeah. So the, the really, 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 really big thing that came out of this was the FAA? Yeah, the, the FAA, FAA literally. The FAA literally came from this accident, as well as quite a few others. But that was the ultimate result from this. And why that's important is because now the entire United States is controlled by FAA air traffic controlled airspace. Yep. Yes. So a little quick thing before we move on. This I wanted to talk about the National Historic Landmark. So in April twenty second of two thousand fourteen, the site of the crash was declared a National Historic Landmark, making it the first landmark for an event that happened in the air. The location in a remote portion of the canyon, only accessible to hikers, has been closed to the public since the nineteen fifties, which is why I said to hike to it, even though it is accessible to hikers, is illegal because they is. don't want you to touch the wreckage. It's also just dangerous. Um, and I'm assuming they're talking about the United portion yeah. of the canyon? Yes, primarily. TWA, I think they got most of the wreckage out because they could helicopter in and get it. But It was harder it, to get to the United flight. It was a lot harder to get to the United mm-hmm. flight. So if you decide to go to the Grand Canyon, you could probably see it from a distance, but please do not go near it and touch it. Maybe. I actually don't know if... It's how easy it is to get to that portion of the canyon, but it says it it does have a plaque, I'm assuming, that does say this is a national landmark. Please do not touch. Yeah, probably. So, that said, well, since we have you here, let's talk about air traffic control and what changed and what you know about air traffic control. Oh, yeah, no problem. Um, So, so it's uh, interesting to see that the FAA came out of this, but also what came out of this crash, you know, along with the FAA, inevitably changed the alpha airspace as we know it today. Mm Because now you can declare, you know, VFR on top of the clouds, but still that's quote unquote VFR. You're still on your flight plan. You're not allowed to deviate from said flight plan like you are today. And a lot of airlines have actually gotten around this loophole where if they have like a scenic route, on their flight, they'll plan for that route now and they'll include right. it in their flight plan. And I was like, I think that's really interesting the way that they do these kind of things. And especially now, even if planes at the same altitude, mm-hmm. especially so close to each other, like mm-hmm. if 
they know, hey, someone's going to be here within, you know, a couple minutes or, you know, something like that. Yep. 500 feet minimum. Yep. Yep. <laughs> 500 yep. feet minimum. Yep. So it's, it's interesting to, to see the changes, you know, from flying in the, the 50s to nowadays. Yeah, exactly. Well, and I know another interesting thing that came out of this too is later they created what's called the transition altitude. Yes. Which is 18,000 feet in the United States yep. and Canada. I was reading that within Europe, it still actually varies. You can be anywhere from 3,000 feet up to you know, yeah. well above 18,000. But transition altitude across North America, basically, mm-hmm. is 18,000 feet exactly. and above. So do you, do you want to explain what that means? Because so, I'm sure you can yes. explain it better than I can. <laughs> I, I definitely can. So transition altitude, to, to put it short, it's when a aircraft is in a climb and they say they're st- going to cruise at, let's say, 25,000 feet. Mm-hmm. Once they hit 17,000 feet, nine, or, sorry, 17,999 feet, they have to do what's called the altitude transition because now they are in what's our airspace now called Class Alpha airspace. And essentially, what this means is when you get above said altitude, you are on an IFR flight plan, and every plane around you is going to be relative to the same altitude, because what we do is we change the altimeter setting, and it's all standard. That way, there's no deviation if one plane came from another area. If they're in the same general airspace that you're in, uh, let's say about five miles or so, right? they'll be at the same, they'll be able to say, oh, you're at 27,000 feet, and... I'm at 25. That 2,000 foot difference is true. Right. That so. 2,000. Yeah, that 2,000 foot difference is perfect. Exactly. Because yeah, so in a, in a layman's sense, basically we have the like we've talked about before the altimeter setting yep. on an airplane. So the altimeter setting is relative to the pressure of the density of the air outside. Yes. And that density of air is relative. They when you fly in and out of an airport, they give it you changes. <laughs> they give you what it is at the airport because it changes vastly. Yeah. And in the United States, we use we use inches of mercury, and usually it is two nine point nine two for standard pressure. A standard seat, yeah, standard day two nine nine two. Exactly. We've talked about that before. And yeah. so that is where say mean sea level zero feet would be perfect zero. zero yeah. On two at two nine nine two of inches of mercury on a perfect day. Now, that's an ideal situation that almost never happens. Yeah. But uh, that um, said, so most airports vary along the way. And even from one airport to another, even if they're only five miles apart, that could be vastly different. That is true. Actually, there was a flight that I did the other um, other week or so. Mm-hmm. And I flew from just Centennial Airport in Denver, mm-hmm. Colorado, to Colorado Springs Airport. Mm-hmm. Taking off from Centennial, the... Um, Barometric altitude was set at three zero two zero. Yep. When I got to Springs, it was two eight seven two. Yeah, totally so, different. Totally different. <laughs> Completely different. Yeah. And it, it, this proves to be a very dangerous thing when you start talking about airplanes that fly really high and really fast, and they're going to be crossing paths because the airways cross. And these these planes, when they're flying really high and really fast, they have no time to even spot that traffic. Exactly. So the easiest way for air traffic control to fix that problem is once they're above 18,000 feet, that transition, they all go to standard pressure, 29.92, and they're required to all be at that. So that way they can maintain a perfect 500-foot separation. Exactly. And uh, along with that, just to uh, explain the implications of setting uh, an altitude difference, if someone has a barometric pressure set to, let's say, Mm 30.20, and... If someone has it at 30.10, mm-hmm. that's 100 feet 
of difference right yeah. there. Yep. But if they're flying in the same vicinity of each other, that hundred feet could be, you know, catastrophic. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. So what now? Now I understand. So having the same barometric pressure makes sure that the distance between the planes is standard between all planes. Exactly. Yes. Above eighteen hundred feet. Exactly. Eighteen thousand feet. Yes. Uh, sorry, not eighteen hundred. Eighteen thousand. I know. <laughs> yes. I know what I was talking. You knew what I was saying. Yep. Yep. Yes. Yeah. The, what I think, not what I say. That kind yeah. of thing. Yeah. So, so this. And like you said, it also it's also required that they're on an instrument flight rules plan, so an IFR flight plan. Yep. So they're required to be talking to air traffic control. They're required to stick to that route these days. They're required to stay on airways, flying yep. waypoint to intersection to VOR. It doesn't matter mm-hmm. as long as it's a, a controlled, charted point. Yeah. And that's the, that's the other thing. With the FAA came controlled airspace in general. Uh, mm-hmm. In the U.S., there's uncontrolled airspace all over, and now it's hard to find any. I think there's maybe three spots of uncontrolled, like, sectioned-off airspace, and they're yeah. in Alaska. So, yeah. yeah. So, that would make which sense. Which yeah. is very, very, very up north. Exactly. And remote. Exactly. Yeah. Now, there are exceptions to this at lower altitudes for VFR traffic. Yep. Um, particularly for our light sport friends who decide not to go for a full pilot's license for a private pilot certificate, mm-hmm. then those light sport certificates that they get, they don't even have to talk to anybody or learn radio communications if they don't want to. Exactly. Now, Which is real should. sketch to me. Yeah. And it all seems of them, very sketch. All of them generally do. And usually, you know, usually any good instructor would still teach you how to do yeah. that and, and such. But you're actually not required to at a lot of very, very small airports and in most bases within the United States because there's so much vast open exactly. nothing. Exactly. And along with that, uh, I actually came across a study where a lot of light sport pilots are just saying, you know, let's just go the full distance now yes. and get the you know, uh, get the private uh, certificate because... And it makes complete sense. It, it really does because they, they get in the air and they're like, I want to do more, but now I can't. So, yeah. and that's what the whole study was about. And it mm-hmm. was amazing to see the trade-off. And I'm like, why don't we just make, you know, like... I understand why the license is there. It's, you know, it's there for the pilots mm-hmm. who are just like, I want to fly, but, you know, I want to do anything too crazy mm-hmm. <laughs> or anything like that. Well, and honestly, it doesn't end up, honestly, and this is a little bit off topic, but uh-huh. private, the, the people who go for their private pilot certificate versus light sport, the whole idea was light sport was supposed to be a cheaper alternative, yep. a simple alternative. But light sport aircraft these days are actually almost more expensive exactly. than most private aircraft, like private, you know, the, the what is it, level... I don't remember what it is. Category one aircraft. Yeah, category one. Yeah. Category one yeah. aircraft. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're usually so most category one aircraft are actually cheaper than light sport aircraft exactly. these days, especially because like a lot of light sport engines they have that sport title to them. Exactly, so, and that drives the price up. And you know, consumers they don't see that until they go, mm-hmm. "Oh, I should have just gotten my private." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. This is the only plane I can fly, and now it's you know three times more expensive. So exactly, and so it makes sense to end up getting your private pilot's license and fly a category one airplane yeah that's just cheaper and actually has you know similar performance sometimes actually less yeah so i yeah i think that that part's really interesting and i mean air traffic control yeah changed completely since then yeah and you know the whole transition altitude all that it also came with a few other things because we changed not just having that transition altitude but because airplanes got more accurate and we had that standard pressure we were actually able to change separation rules. Yep. And above 18,000 feet, separations are much less and even closer than you'd think mm-hmm. than they would be at lower altitudes, for example. Yeah. So, 
uh, speaking of like like separation stuff, when you're in class alpha, the separation that you can see sometimes is mm-hmm. it's astronomical. How, and especially with developments like TCAS and mm-hmm. ADSB, when you're up there, it's you know a plane is there before you even see it. Now. Oh yeah. And if ATC doesn't tell you, your instruments will. Yeah, and exactly. The you know stuff in the cockpit will tell you. And then if you still don't see it after ATC has screamed at you, then your instruments are starting to scream at you now too. So. Yep. Which it is really easy to not see other aircraft, especially when you have landscape below you and they're below you. It is so hard to see other aircraft. Oh, I've I've definitely have like gone up and I've like flying around DIA's airspace. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, that's a, is that a goose or a bird? And then. You and know, then it comes it's an up, airplane. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's, it's like a 737 really coming in, and it's like, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And then I hear, uh, and then even still, then I'll hear, I'll look, spot the plane, and then I'll see, see Denver ATC, and they'll say, hey, mm-hmm. traffic, six o'clock. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> the first time I ever went up with Nick and his dad, we were flying, I think it was kind of around like the Lakewood area, mm-hmm. and it was mm-hmm. during a Broncos game. Mm-hmm. And so there was a no fly area over the stadium, of course. Of course. But they issued a traffic alert for the flyover, and we're all looking like, where is it? And then we heard it. Yeah. Yeah, there was three F-16s just off our wing that were just hauling right past us. But because they were below us, they're actually really hard to spot because they're yeah. like, I mean, it's like but, when you when you if you're looking at a room, basically, it's like thinking like 50 feet in front of you. Yeah. You're trying to look for a needle. Yeah. Basically like that. That kind of you can't see them. Mm-hmm. Oh, especially oh, like military planes, because uh, like imagine in a city mm-hmm. where you have gray on gray roads, exactly. and they're designed <laughs> to be disguised. A hazy yeah. sky. Yeah. The only reason we were even able to pick them out was because they were moving so fast. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, when you're talking about airplanes up above, up in the clouds and such that are close together, and they've got a crossing speed of nearly two times the speed of sound. Yeah. I mean, it's insane. You're not going to be able to see the other guy until he's on top of you, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Which. There have been times there were multiple collisions, even collisions. There was one, I don't know, I don't even remember the time frame. It was like, I don't know, maybe 30, upwards of 30 years ago. Maybe not quite that much. I have where, a list. Yeah, the, there was a collision or an almost collision between a military plane and a uh, jetliner. Mm-hmm. And it was too late. Like, neither of them could do anything about it. Um, once they were able to see each other, it was too late. <laughs> yeah. Yep. And the and in that case, the instruments didn't help them in, in some case. I can't remember exactly what the what the situation was. but Yeah. yeah. And we'll talk more about TCAS when we eventually talk about a collision that TCAS failed, yep. in a manner of speaking. That was the one we were going to do with you. Yes. But you already yes. knew it, and I was like, no, we got to do a different one. So we changed, but that's okay, because I think this one was even more important to cover first. Yes, absolutely. Well, because this is the start of the FAA. Yeah. <laughs> like this one became big. a really pinnacle in aviation it changed so much in the united states let alone around the world and and the the other thing about the faa that a lot of people don't realize is that when you think of the faa you think oh you know airspace uh commercial travel you know Mm -hmm. the things like things of that so much more but you don't realize that hey the faa you know they're the ones that are looking out and like when the president comes or anything like that, Mm -hmm. they know before you will. Oh, they know everything. And they know everything. The FAA has this incredible hand in everything in aviation in the United States. And quite literally. And yeah. And mail to exactly. Exactly. Even in the military. I mean, they've got their hands and everything there too, Mm -hmm. to make sure that there's a big coordination these days. And so it's, it's, 
you know, the FAA was a really, really big thing that came from this, really important. Yeah. And, you know, good and bad, because obviously we've heard before when the NTSB or the CAB, blamed the FAA. (laughs) Which is like every episode we cover in the United States, I feel. Generally, they're always dissatisfied with something the FAA is doing. The FAA should do this, and the FAA should do that, and they didn't do a good job at this, so they should do this instead. And I was like, dang, shots fired. I mean, you also have to understand, I mean, it is incredible what the FAA has managed to do in the amount of time it has, because having their hand in everything is a very complicated thing. Yeah, especially now, especially like with ICAO, or I-C-A-O, if, you know, especially with that, their hand in that alone just Mm -hmm. make everything standard and easier. Yes. (laughs) And And they're the governing body of aviation. So if something needs to change, they have to be the ones to change it. Exactly. And so their hands in the I-C-A-O and even coordination with the I-A-T-A has really made things so much more uniform around the world because they're able to say, hey, look. Because the United States has so much aviation compared to the rest of the world in yeah. all forms, military, GA, you know, general aviation yeah. and commercial traffic that we're able to say, you know, hey, look, we've dealt with every single one of these types of situations mm-hmm. and we have this standard for it. You really should consider, you know, in the rest of the world having this regulation yeah. or this requirement and that that's why the ICAO and the IATA exist, is to kind of standardize across the world yeah. those things. So that's why we talk about on this podcast, it's safe these days. Because the FAA, while we have the FAA here, and most countries have their own form of it, having there's still a standardized body and standardized understanding around the world of most regulations and guidance. Yeah, and the, the FAA is kind of like that parent that would just walk around and they would tell you to do things and you'd mm-hmm. kind of question it and they'd be like, hey well, you know, why do we have to do this? Why do we have to listen to you guys? And they're like, hey, we've done the studies. We've done this. Yes, we've done this. (laughs) We've done this a lot now. And usually they can point to an accident or And they literally can. And and I think that, like, that foundation that they have now, it's just just made everything a lot better. It's important. Now, we're also seeing a point where the world is kind of questioning the FAA, too, when they start to get lax. And that kind of happens. I mean, this goes in cycles around the world. This doesn't. This isn't the only time. But I mean, it is. It is what it is. And things are are still good. I mean, the, around the world, it's unbelievably safe these days, and it's amazing what we've managed to do because of things like this. It's unfortunate, but accidents like this, you know, we say no death in vain, basically in aviation. Yeah. <laughs> Everything changes. And that was the Grand Canyon collision. Yeah. Thanks again to everyone who's recommending stuff because we have recommendations clear through December now. Yeah, we are we are booking up <laughs> like solid. So much. Uh, most of that is recommendations from you guys. So thank you so much. Thank you, Aaron, for being coming and being on the podcast. Yeah, of course. Yeah, I great. told him about it like I don't know what in December. He was like, "Oh, I'll listen to it," and then like three weeks later, he's like, "I want to be on your podcast." <laughs> and that's awesome. We'll have you back anytime too. Yes, this was definitely. a lot of fun. And thank you to David Robinson for recommending this incident and like a million others. (laughs) Yeah, thanks. Yeah, there's like a stack of you. There's like five of you that just give us all our recommendations. And it's awesome. Takes up all of our time. And right now, David's beating out everyone. So So guys, catch up. I'm throwing down the gauntlet. (laughs) (laughs) But no, it's uh, it's awesome, actually. I'm I'm really glad that we have people that are so interested. They're willing to just keep keep throwing stuff at us because... Uh, you know, honestly, I'm I'm really happy that we're able to make our our whole list, our whole schedule based on recommendations. It's what yes. I said from the get go. Is like it's awesome to have basically an audience driven podcast. Yeah, yes. stuff you guys want to hear. 
that's huge to me because it, it shows our interaction between us and you guys. And it's not just you listening to us. It's us literally doing what, what you want us to do. So, uh, again, a little bit of a shameless plug because we haven't done this in a while. If you want more content, we do have a Patreon. Or if you want your recommendation to be bumped sooner, become a patron. We will move you up. We've had to bump a couple of episodes recently because one of our patrons recommended some. So now we have to bump other recommendations further out. And sorry to you, but if you want that privilege, then... it is. Priority boarding is it the is name of that benefit. Priority, yep. priority boarding, yep. <laughs> you also get exclusive Miranda sodes too, where I am the one doing all of the research and these two are the ones doing all the reacting. Which, <laughs> you know, is, is great. Examples of flight she has covered, uh, Korean Airlines, Flight 801, Alaskan Airlines, Flight 261. Ooh, that's a fun one. <laughs> yeah, that is yeah. a fun one. That was the first one I did. It was a lot. So There's, there were, there's a total of seven now how uh, many have actually been edited that's so there's four <laughs> but that's all right we're, we're eventually there'll be it. seven I, I promise we're getting to it <laughs> but uh and also our post episodes you get to learn a little bit more about us we yeah. chat a little bit sometimes there, it's about aviation sometimes it's about other stuff so. so a lot of the times it's about other stuff yeah but that gives you a little more background on us you do or don't have to listen we don't care yeah it's more us there. just rambling for a period of time <laughs> so have a great week be safe be safe be smart wear a mask okay have a great week and we will catch you next time keep Keep your speed up please like and follow us on facebook and instagram at hard landings podcast and on twitter at hard landings pod also subscribe and leave us a five-star review on whatever platform you're using to listen if you want to see photos and sources for this episode please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us, plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi. And our social media is coordinated by Sonora. Catch you next time.